prayer guide this week. How many of you guys took the time to go through this? You know, Wednesday was a horrible day uh, <laughs> where the Dodgers got knocked out of the got knocked out of a year where we should have won the World Series. This is the third year that we feel this way. Um, but but I was aided because on Wednesday I took some time uh, throughout the throughout the day. I have the privilege of working here and walking around and just going from room to room and just you know I got kicked out of that room when I was a kid and. You know, I got thrown out of that room, and uh, but but really just to remember like all the different teachers and pastors and people that have poured into my life, and I said, man, what a privilege that I get to raise my daughter in this church. You know, and, and hopefully for some of you, you you've done the same, whether it's FCBC Walnut or your local church, and uh, to go through and just say, how has God blessed you through trials, through challenges? How has God used his people to walk with you? And, and, and hopefully by the end of the week, you realize that, man, we have a responsibility. We have a mission. We have a great commission to steward because the Lord has always kept his mission towards us. He's always been faithful towards us. He's never stopped working in our lives. Today we continue our series entitled Blessed to Be a Blessing to prepare our hearts spiritually to enter the new physical building. Uh, we mentioned last week that the building is just a building. It's just a physical structure. And it's important to God, but what's more important is what happens within that structure. What matters to God most are the hearts of the individuals, the disciple makers who enter that building to achieve the to achieve the Great Commission, right? To work towards the Great Commission, the disciple-making mission that he gave us. So today, the title of our message is Rejoice in the Progress. Rejoice in the Progress. There's going to be three major movements to today's sermon. Three major movements that we're going to take. First, what we're going to take is, what we're going to do is we're going to take the bulk of our time going through the original context of Nehemiah chapter 4. We want to understand the biblical text in its Old Testament context. And of that, out of that time, that first movement, we're going to spend the most time on point number one. So don't get worried when it's 25 minutes into the sermon, you're like, we're not even on point number two yet. Point number two is going to come like a twinkling of an eye. You know, it's just going to go and move three and four, okay? But point number one is we, where we are going to land and, and camp out on for a little bit. But that's our first movement. Then secondly, we are going to Rejoice upon how the Lord has brought us over several major obstacles in our building project. That'll be quick, but we want to take some time to go through that. And most importantly, finally, we are going to go back to Nehemiah and understand that passage in light of all of Scripture, which means you know it's coming every single week we're going to Jesus. It's not a Christian message unless we go to the gospel, right? And so we want to understand the Old Testament context taken and applied through all of Scripture, and we're going to go to Christ, and that's where we're going to get application, okay? So if you have God's Word, please take it and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. In your English Bibles, it's before the Psalms, but just so you understand Old Testament history, that the Old Testament is, is not put together in chronological order, at least the English Bible. And what you have in the Masoretic text is in some forms of the, of the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, Nehemiah is at the end of the Bible. Other versions, you have Second Chronicles at the end. But Nehemiah historically is actually at the end of the Bible, which means that after the time of Nehemiah, it's the intertestamental period, and then Jesus comes. And then we get to the New Testament. So Nehemiah, in context of Old Testament history, if you plant yourself into there, you find yourself at the end of Old Testament history as the Bible has it for us. So at this point, David's kingdom, Judah, has been exiled to Babylon. That happened 586 B.C. And by this time, you are... You're familiar with the fact that Solomon's temple was destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem lay in ruin. And now we are in Nehemiah chapter 4. The year is around 445 B.C. Some of God's people have returned to Jerusalem from exile. The Jews have been given the permission and the blessing to return to their homeland and, and to look at the city of David and to rebuild the city of David. But this is a sad sight. 
for them to see. The city gates and the walls were in ruins. And without these walls, God's people had no sense of protection from their enemies. Not, not too unlike what we have today. Israel was surrounded by nations who hated them. And by theology, we understand that that means they hated Israel's God. They hated Yahweh, whether they were aware of that or not. Being an enemy of God's people put themselves in a very bad position, meaning you're an enemy of the work of God and you're the enemy of Yahweh. But there was no sense of safety. So Nehemiah, he travels back to Jerusalem with a plan to rebuild the city gate and the city walls. And you know, by God's sovereign hand, last week we talked about how God was sovereignly with David. You know, God has always been with his people, at least those who were faithful to him. And Nehemiah, by God's sovereign hand, happened to be the cupbearer of the king of Persia. Right? And so for some of us, we might think, well, big deal, he's a cupbearer. The cupbearer is a very important position. The cupbearer is a trustworthy position because what the cupbearer's job was to do, and I guess they didn't care about cross-contamination back then, was Nehemiah would drink the cup before he would give it to the king, right? So any drink given to the king, you could kill the king, you could poison the king, but the cupbearer was like at the right hand of the king tasting that cup and saying, okay, king, you know, I drank this, some time has passed, it's clear, I'm not dead, so you should take it, okay? So this is a very important position. It's a high position, a trusted position to the king of Persia during that time. And Nehemiah did not have a building permit, but he had something similar called letters from the king of Persia that gave him permission and blessing to rebuild the city gates and the walls. Not only that, but he had the resources Given, given him letters given from the king to Nehemiah to get all the resources he, he needed to build this building project. But despite having the king's blessing, Nehemiah faced opposition. He faced resistance from the regional leaders of nations that hated Israel. So here's the bad guys, right? So in every story, you want to you wanna know who the bad guys are, right? So here's the bad guys. This is the opposition. You have Sanballat. Just sounds like a bad guy, uh, but I, I trust that none of you had named your kids Sanballat, the horror knight. That uh, just sounds, sounds bad. But he's the governor of Samaria, and, and you're going to see that later in chapter 4, verse 2, that he, he invokes the, the army of Samaria but that's Sanballat. The second bad guy is Tobiah. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, is, he's the Ammonite official. Then you have Geshem, the Arab. And the Arabs came from the south. right? And then you have the Ashdodites. The Ashdodites are the people from the west. You're going to see that also come up in chapter 4, verse 7. And that's the land where the Philistines used to dwell. Right? So the Philistines, that's David's enemies. It's a lot of Old Testament history that we don't have time to get into here, but that's a preview of the bad guys. They hated God's people. And so today, the topic question, the thematic question that we're looking at in the original context is how does Nehemiah and God's people overcome opposition? How do they overcome opposition? Point number one, what we're going to see from the passage is that we overcome opposition. The way that they overcame opposition is through prayer. They prayed to Yahweh. Now, with that background, Let's look at verses 1 to 3 of your Bibles. This is what it says, the Word of God in the ESV. It says, Now when Samballot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was angry. And notice the double emphasis. He was angry and greatly enraged. Wasn't just angry, he was enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, which means he mocked, he scoffed at them. Right? Verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Then Tobiah, here's another guy. Right, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they doing? And look at the trash talk of the Old Testament, right? Even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall, which means that wall is weak. Even if, you get, if a fox goes up on it, it it'll topple over. 
right? So that's kind of trash talking against the Jews. Now, why are they so enraged? Keep in mind a few things. Nehemiah is simply trying to build a defense. He's not building an offensive military. Keep in mind of what he's trying to do. All he's trying to do is restore the walls that were once there, and these walls would keep the invaders and keep the enemies and keep evil from coming into the people of Israel who would dwell, or the people of Judah technically, who would dwell in the rebuilt city of David. But why are they so upset? It's because these enemies of God's people, they relished, they found joy at looking over at Jerusalem and seeing, look at that city, that once upon a time great city of David, once upon a time Solomon's temple, once upon a time the powerful people. Look at that, look at that, that, that heap of ruins. What, why, why did they rejoice in the heap of ruins? Because somehow symbolically they saw that heap of ruins as symbolic of Israel's God being weak and silent. So it's never been about a building. But if they were to see the people united, the people's spirits being lifted to come together to try to rebuild that, and for that project to even be attempted and then to be rebuilt, it would say something. It's saying something that God is speaking once again, that the prophets are not silent, that the word of God is in activity, that the law of the Lord stands and that Yahweh speaks and his people are united and they will build and they have hope. It says a lot more than a building. It's never been about the building. It's always about God speaking and working through his people. And that sent a message of fear across the face of the land of Israel's enemies. And so they were angered. They were bothered by this. Some background that during this time, because of the exile, the law of the Lord was silent. The prophets were silent. And remember when Ezra gets up in Nehemiah chapter 8 later and he opens the law, it's like there was a spiritual famine in the land where people actually were asking the pastors to preach. And people are saying, we are so hungry, bring the book. Bring the book of the law. We want to hear the word of God. We want it verse by verse. We want it expositionally. I mean, that never happens in our churches today, right? Give us more stories. Give us entertainment. But they wanted the law of the Lord because they were that hungry. That's what all of that represented. The, the God of Israel would speak again through his people his people would be united and they would build. And all of this was set up, once again, for the need for Messiah to come. The hope in Messiah would be uplifted among his people. And they would worship. And that's the threat of this building project. Okay? Look at verses 4 to 5. So, so Sanballat, Tobiah, they're threatening. They actually can't take military warfare because Nehemiah had the blessing of the king of Persia. So how does Nehemiah respond? He prays. And look at how he prays. His weapons are not weapons of warfare. Even when he does pick up weapons, it's just for defense. His weapon is the, the Lord. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, it's important to note that nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament does God rebuke Nehemiah for this prayer. Nowhere does God actually say, well, Nehemiah, I'm actually not angry. So this stands to show that actually Samballot and Tobiah and the enemies of God actually provoked the Lord to anger. The, the, the word spoken by Nehemiah, recorded by Ezra, we believe that Nehemiah was most likely written by Ezra, that these words stand. But I want you to see Nehemiah's heart. Even though he's praying in, in preparatory prayers, he's not wishing unnecessary injustice on the enemies of Israel. Notice that he says, turn back their taunts. 
He's saying they're taunting us, turn it back on them. What they're saying to us, protect us. Let that happen to them. Right? And when he says, let not their sin blotted, be blotted out from your sight, he's saying, God, look at their evil. Look at how evil they are. So you see Israel simply trying to defend themselves here in the original context. Right? Even their leader is, is asking for defense. And then verse 5, Nehemiah states it. Lord, they provoked you to anger in the presence of us, in the presence of those of us who are trying to build for you. Now, as Christians, it's a little different, right? We pray, God, will you forgive them? Will you please save them? When our enemies wish us harm, we turn the cheek. But it is never wrong for God's people to ask him to uphold justice. When we see injustice, we can always say, God, thwart the plans Reverse the plans of evil. God, will you stop those who are evil from operating? Will you protect your people? And we should pray that way, right? But not with hearts of vengeance, but with hearts where we know and we trust that God will vindicate us. Now look at verse 6. This is such a powerful statement here. Oftentimes we miss out on it because it says, so we built the wall. So we built the wall. You know, oftentimes even today, when there is opposition, when there's fear, people stop working, right? When there's doubt, when there's doubt among the leadership, when there's doubt among people, people stop believing in the cause. People's hearts are, are fickle and feeble. We want to win, right? We want to win. And, and so sometimes when we're not winning or when we, when we doubt that a project will work or when there's opposition and when there, th- when there are threats of violence, the soul grows weak. But look at the resolve. All they did was pray. Right? All they did was pray. And that prayer b- brought resolve. It was the weapon of prayer. It was faith in knowing that God hears. And so they built the wall. They went to work because they believed that God was behind them. And then in verse 6 it says, and the wall was joined together to half its height, meaning there was progress. It wasn't complete, but there was progress. For the people had a mind to work, which means they were united. And they were resolved to work. Now, Tobiah and Samballot and and the enemies, the Ammonites, the, the Samaritans, right, uh, the, the Ashdodites join in on this. The Arabs, they look at this and they're like, let's escalate. So it goes from verbal threats to threats of physical violence. Look at verses 7 to 8. When Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So I want you to see a few things. One, they plotted. All they could do was plot to come together and fight. And their goal was to cause confusion. Once again, they physically could not attack. But that doesn't mean that they didn't attack, right? So what happens? How long do you think it would take word for Nehemiah to send a letter by horseback or however, back to Babylon or to wherever the Persian king was? How long would it take for reinforcements to come? So there's a real threat that these enemies of God could cause some problems. So, so I don't know. The text doesn't say this. So you're not sure, but what, maybe vandalism. Maybe they would come and, and maybe mess up the work a little bit. Maybe they would throw things. Like think of a protest, right? Maybe they would throw things at the workers, Maybe they would come near and, and, and threaten work. So there was a real threat physically, emotionally, there was stress, even though there wasn't actually warfare, right? Think of the intimidation factor. And you know that these threats are real because Nehemiah doesn't just pray now. Look at how he responds. He says he's compatibilistic in his understanding of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He says we will pray, but we will also set a guard. Not just one guard, but we will also have defense. We're not going to fight back. We're not going to 
be on the offensive, but we will have defense. Look at verse 9. And we prayed, and the key word is and. So there's trusting in God's divine sovereignty and defense, but also we got to take up responsibility. We got to be reunited to, to take up arms, right? So we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection. Key word, protection, not an offensive. A protection against them day and night. I'm trying to build a case for you. You can see the authorial intent that in this story, these are the good guys. They're just trying to defend themselves. But that defense had to stand day and night. And this is the faith of Nehemiah, right? There's a partnership between man and heaven, right? Naturally, though, you know these threats are real because in verses 10 to 12, the people began to grow weak in their emotions. Look at verses 10. Verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. They're being discouraged. There's too much work. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Look at verse 11. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So what's happening here is is the enemies are saying loud enough for the workers to hear, we're going to kill them, we're going to ambush them when they don't know it. And it's working. Because look at verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, being a round number, meaning they kept saying over and over again, you must return to us. Now, that must be explained. Okay, What's happening is there are nearby communities outside of Jerusalem where there were Jews who lived there. And these Jews came, they left their homes because they saw the vision to build, they believed in the vision to build, and they came to help rebuild the city of David. And But with all these threats of violence and warfare, their family members now, their loved ones, were coming to Jerusalem over and over again and saying, you must return to us because we don't want you to die. You must return to us. And that's what's happening. So Nehemiah faces the crisis of a possible abandonment of the work. That would be a major setback. It would halt the work, right? If all of the workers who came from outside abandoned their posts, abandoned their spears and their shields and their swords, and dropped their hammers and shovels and whatever they used to build, and if they went home to their families out of fear. And that's what's happening. So how would Nehemiah overcome? Right, so first he overcame through prayer, but now we move to point number two. He overcame by calling the people to unity, and we overcome opposition to God's work through unity. We see this in verses 13 to 14. So Nehemiah responds with the strength of the Lord. He's not intimidated, right? This is strong leadership. He understands that it's not his plan, but it's God. And if God wants to build, it's going to be built. Look at verse 13. And 14, let me read it to you. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, because if you break, if you break and destroy the foundation, the wall is going to topple, right? So at the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, so that's where the breaches are, I stationed the people by their clans or by their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows, right? So notice the, the strategic, he's not just... Okay, we're just going to, he trusts in God, but look at it. You have spears. What are the spears for? Right? These aren't asparagus spears. You know, I, I'm kind of hungry right now. Right? But this is, this is for, for close warfare. Okay? Swords. What are the swords for? Close combat, hand-to-hand combat. But, but there's bows. Why? Bows and arrows. So you need shields too because the enemies might shoot their bows and arrows. But you need, you, need, uh, you know, this what do you call that? Long distance warfare, right? Where you're shooting bows and arrows. But verse 14, artillery, is that what it's called? Verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember, I'm going to show you what he doesn't say. Remember my vision. He doesn't say that. Remember my strong plan. He doesn't say that. Remember what I told you, my rally cry. He doesn't say that. Remember my bullpen. I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that. Dodger fans, come on, cry with me, right? Remember my bullpen. He doesn't say it. What does he say? He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. 
Guys, it's not our human planning. It's not our human cunning. It's not our spears. It's not our swords. It's not anything. It's not our bows. It's not anything that's great. But notice what he calls to. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. So again, there is human responsibility while trusting in divine sovereignty. He says, remember the Lord who's great and awesome, but you must fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Even Israel today stands in a place where people want to eliminate their race. There's a reason to fight. There is a reason to fight, right? They're surrounded by enemies. And you know God wants them to fight because God needs to preserve his people because out of his people comes the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so you better bet that God is going to fight for his people, right? And so Nehemiah's leadership is so powerful and strong. Why? Because he successfully points the people to God. To God. And that leads to point number three, right? We overcome opposition through prayer. We overcome opposition through unity. But we overcome opposition, point number three, because God fights for us. We see this in verses 15 to 20. Nehemiah understood that God fights, not for every cause, but God fights for the people of promise, So we overcome opposition because God fights for us. Notice verses 15. It's working, right? Their defense, their prayer, their unity. What's working? Not their offense, but the sight of God's people being united. The sight of God's people crying to him in prayer and the sight of God's people coming together and not being divided and being devoted to what they believe God wants them to build. It is an amazing sight to see people united to a vision of God, united in prayer, coming together and sacrificing, right? It is powerful to see people being willing to put their lives on the line because they believe in a vision of God. That's what united them. And that's why it says in verse 15, God frustrated, not Nehemiah, but God frustrated the enemies. Notice verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on the construction, half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon on the other. How do you even work like that i i'm skinny i can't even lift up one of those swords okay uh if i can i'll swing it and cut my own neck off right so so how do you do that and hold a like whatever they a shovel or or something to a masonry work or something right how do you do that look at the resolve look at how tired they must be they must have taken turns they must have supported each other In verse 18, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Right, so they're building, they have swords strapped to the side, ready to fight. What a display of unity. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And so there's someone there from the Arcadia Band, right? No, Pastor Terrence tells me how great the Arcadia Band is. I believe it. I know there's Diamond Bar Band people in here. I, always, I was always told Diamond Bar had the greatest band, so come on, guys. Show me that that's right. Where's the wall in the band in this? Anyway, marching band. I want you to march around that wall. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but they had a trumpet person who couldn't sleep, right, because he would be there. And verse 19, look at the strategy. And I said to the nobles, not the Nogales nobles, but the real nobles, and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And that's how they're spread apart. They are separated on the wall from one to another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Meaning when you hear the trumpet call, that means we're being attacked. Everyone run to that position and let's fight. Look at the show of unity. And then notice the trust. I want you to see the future tense at the end of verse 20. Our God will fight for us. That's the faith. Our God will 
fight for us. So that's point number three. We overcome our opposition because our God fights for us. Point number four. We overcome opposition through sacrificial service. We saw a little bit of that in verses 15 to 20, but now we see this come alive in verses 21 to 23. And so we labored at the work. Notice verse 21. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And verse 22. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. Verse 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Well, why would you take off your clothes? That's weird. Okay, there's a reason. They need to bathe. That means that even when they had to bathe, and take their rest, they kept their clothes on. And that's why some of your translations said they didn't even take off their clothes when they went into water. Okay? That's why. Okay, that's why your, your Bibles, some of your translations have that, right? Each kept his weapon at his right hand, which means they were always ready to fight. So what you see here was each of them were willing to sacrifice individually. Each of them were willing to build. Each of them were willing to pray, each of them were willing to fight and defense. And what type of sacrifice would it be for those who didn't fight? Well, a lot of them, were, it was their, their, their wives and their children and the elderly back home. They sacrificed by sending their men and their loved ones to be on the front line. Right? So everyone sacrificed. And that's what it took. You see, God could have, God created, right, in six literal days. He could have built that wall by himself. By, by snapping his divine will, the fingers of his divine will, and just willed and decreed that wall. But he chose to use people. Why? Because he wanted to set a process where God's people would experience unity and sacrifice. And that's why, guys, whenever we embark upon a project, it requires each and every disciple maker. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise of unity. It's an exercise of sacrifice. And so the Old Testament principle we see here, the old the Old Testament principle is that God's people overcame opposition how? Through prayer, unity, sacrificial service, and trusting God to fight for them. That's how the wall was rebuilt. That's how they overcame opposition, is that through prayer, unity, sacrificial service, and trusting God to fight for them. And we overcome through prayer, and we don't have to fight. Guys, our opposition is different. When we face opposition to our building, I don't think the city officials are trying to kill us. I hope you don't see them that way. I hope we want to win them, right? When, the, when Southern California Edison comes and says, ah, there's a problem, there's a power line under here, they're not trying to kill us. They're trying to do their job. But Satan, being the enemy of God's people, are always going to use different means, even legal means, to try to stop his project. He doesn't want it. What are other ways that Satan would stop us? Disunity. If there was conflict or disunity in our church, it's very hard to agree on anything God wouldn't want us to build, right? If the leaders disagree or if there's conflict among, among builders, right, there's going to be problems. Or if we don't have money, that's, that's another barrier. So, so we have different forms of obstacles, obstacles and opposition, but how do we overcome? We overcome by prayer. We all need to pray, but we all need to sacrifice. Some of you, it's giving financially, and we wouldn't have that if you didn't give financially. But God has enabled you to do so, right? Others of you, you're serving. Some individuals have really labored hard working on the building committee, working, volunteering their time, and making sure that everything goes through. Someone has to show up to meet with the, with the government officials to show up. Someone has to work with the building contractors. Someone has to inspect. Someone has to go around, right? And someone has to design and someone has to decide how we do the interior. So this takes an entire church to build. We don't fight with swords. We don't, and most of us don't pick up tools. Trust me, you don't want me trying to build that thing. We would all die, okay? <laughs> you know, I can't, even, I can't even build something in my own home, Right? And so, so, so you don't want the pastors doing that, right? The pastors lead us in a vision and prayer and a preaching of God's word. But we rejoice in the progress. I just want to take a few moments to let you know about some of what we, what, the obstacles we went over that we had to overcome. First of all, those of you who are newer to us, this building plan goes back to 2007. But did you know that when this, 
When this building was built and when this land was purchased, there was a sister from, from our mother church, FCBC LA, that purchased that, the house that was on that lot, that entire lot that we're building. She purchased that lot and gifted it over to us. And she had a vision somehow that we would need that one day. And that was out of her vision in believing in this church. And then 2007, so that's decades later, there was a building plan to build. And by God's hand, and there's several reasons, there are many reasons, I'm not going to go over them here, that God did not allow us to pick up that building until recently, right, that project. So what happens over time is that the building permit would expire. So on October 19th of 2017, we had a deadline. If we didn't build anything, that building permit would completely expire, right? And in order for that building permit to be approved, there were many outstanding, outstanding things that we had to overcome. Uh, and so here's a few of them. So we had an expiring permit. We had a Hinghua Lee Plaza. That's the plaza next door. They had concrete chunks that crossed over into their, our property line. And if we called them, they could have been like, that's your problem. You guys figure it out. You guys pray harder, right? Southern California Edison, right, SCE, um, that's not sovereign Calvinist evangelical. That, that would be me, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, that's the Southern California Edison. There was a power line running underneath our land that powered one of the, some of the street lights. And so if we're going to build over that, we need to do something about that. And then, there, and then we would be building over a storm drain, which is another problem that I don't understand, right, but our engineers do. And so we had several issues, but, but by God's grace, how did we respond? We prayed, and you guys gave. We still prayed, and we still gave, right? And so on, on October 26, 2017, wait a minute, I thought the permit expired on the 19th. God was gracious. Seven days late. We didn't, we didn't have it all together. People worked really hard. There's some people sitting in this room that labor day and night. They lost their hair. Just look at them, okay? And <laughs> seven days later, seven days later, the county was gracious, and they still granted us the permit with the conditions to be resolved later. And, and we called Hinghua Lee, the plaza next door, and they said, we'll, we'll help you. Our bad. We let our concrete go over. We shouldn't have done that. And so they, they helped us. And the concrete slabs were removed. And Edison came, and they, 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 did this for, they didn't have to do this for us. They came, and they took care of it for us. They removed and hauled away the old power line, right? And they set up another power line. And, and I think they paid for it. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? And the county approved a new design plan to separate our building into phase one and phase two to avoid building over the storm drains. And this is all... By the grace of God. Now, if God did not want us to build, he would have said, it's great that you guys have money, but sorry, there's some legal things, there's some county things that you're not going to be able to get the permit approved and you're not going to build. But God, by his grace, is saying, you guys got that vision to make disciples? Well, that seems to be the Great Commission. You guys are united as a church. Pastors are united. Deacons are united. People are united. Maybe now's the time. And we believe that God's given us that blessing now, right? But we know that it's not about the building because the moment we get selfish, the moment we lose sight of it, we can see how hard it was. And so, brothers and sisters, no matter what, going into this building, we need to do everything we can to keep praying. And we need to make sure that we are united. And we need to fight hard for personal holiness in our individual lives. Because hidden sin in the church will divide the church and will destroy the church. And then, and then God, God might just say, well, you know, you got a nice structure, but I don't think you guys are going to use this for my glory. And so we need to make sure that we remember the past. That's the spiritual formation process, that God saved us individually. God used churches and people to build into us, that this building was a gift of God, and we don't deserve it. 35 years of God's faithfulness to us. And then that strip of land, it was given to us by God through a sister, a wealthy, blessed sister from our mother church. We didn't have to have that land. God gave it to us, and he wanted us to build right? And then now you look at that structure. You look at the progress. God didn't have to give it to us, but he did. 
And now let's go back to Nehemiah and let's finish up this, this sermon. I want you to go to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, and I have it overhead for you. And the question I want you to ask is, what motivated Nehemiah to build? What motivated him? What motivated him? Well, one, I, I believe he loved God. But if you love God, you love people, don't you? Love God and love people? I think he loved his people. He, I don't think he cared so much about just a physical wall. It means nothing. He loved the flourishing of families that could study God's law together, study Torah, study the Old Testament books of history, sing the Psalms, raise their children. And so he said, look at verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Look at where he started. Guys, he started with tears and mourning because his heart broke for the defense of the people and for what once was a place where God's people could be God's people. The city of David, once this glorious city, the center of, of Judah, was now in ruins and the people were in danger. And the people's hearts were not revived. And if their hearts were not revived, they would not be strong. They would not keep their hearts set on the Lord because that's Israel's history, right? They constantly turn away from the Lord. He knew that a fortified city of David would uplift the people's hearts and bring worship to God and the people's hearts would be centered on Christ. Why else do you build? Why else do you build the church? So the people's hearts would be united, families would flourish, people would come and get saved, and worship would happen. And then where did he start? He started with fasting and prayer, not with a building plan. Now I want you to go to Matthew 23, and I want you to see another person who looked at Israel and loved Israel, and he wept. But keep in mind that during this time, there was another temple. So the walls were there, but now it's Herod's temple. So the, the temple that Nehemiah experienced, that makeshift temple as well as Jerusalem, was again taken over and destroyed and now rebuilt and now Herod's temple. And here's Jesus, the true and better Israelites, and he comes in Matthew 23, verse 37, and he looks at Jerusalem, and not too unlike Nehemiah, who cared about the, the worship of God, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus looks at this and he doesn't see the desolate walls. He doesn't see a desolate temple. What he sees is spiritual desolation. He sees the hearts of the people are not worshiping God. Do you think that that's what Nehemiah felt as well in some way. And Jesus looks upon the people and he says, look at the people. Their shepherds are not leading them to worship me. They're in spiritual desolation. So Jesus wept over not the physical state of Jerusalem, but the spiritual state of Jerusalem. So it's a little different from Nehemiah, but we have to give Nehemiah more credit that he trusted in, in the faith of God. He pointed people to God. He wanted people to remember the Lord who would fight for them. But the question is, beloved, we have a building coming. Do, do we weep over the lost souls in Walnuts, Roland Heights, and Diamond Bar, Chino Hills? Do we weep over lost ones? Do we, do we mourn and remember what it was like when we weren't saved or if Jesus didn't save us? Do our hearts long for the people who are struggling spiritually? Because if we can have the nicest building in the world, but if we forget 
about Jesus and we forget about our disciple-making vision, we've lost sight of the vision. Right Now, I want you to see another perspective of the same account of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And I want you to see Luke chapter 19. So look at Luke 19, verses 41 and 44. Same context and, and events, different accounts and perspective. Look at what Luke says, verse 41. And when he drew near, that's being Jesus, that being Jesus, saw the city, he wept over it. Just like Nehemiah wept, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's that time of visitation? I believe that the perspective I take with, with several New Testament interpreters is that this day of visitation is the day that Christ comes and reveals himself to Israel and Israel's leaders as the Messiah and they rejected Christ. Now I want you to see the irony here and why this connects back to Nehemiah. What Jesus condemns them of is the very thing that Nehemiah wanted to build the walls to guard the people against. I want to read it to you again. Nehemiah looked at Jerusalem and he wept and he mourned because he saw the people defenseless. He saw their children threatened. He saw families that could not protect themselves from evil. And notice what it says. It says, Jesus saying, but the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. That's what Nehemiah wanted to build a wall to defend Israel from. And surround you and they'll hem you in from every side. That's what Nehemiah wanted to guard against. And they will tear you down to the ground, your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. But Nehemiah looked at, looked at Jerusalem and he saw the rubble and the stones broken down and it broke his heart. So Jesus is saying, here's the bigger picture. The walls are the walls, but only God can protect you from the greatest form of evil. Israel's greatest enemy was their own sin and their own tendency to turn towards idolatry and the world. Their greatest struggle was forgetting that when you trust God, he fights for you. But when you turn away from him, you're not operating according to his law and his prophets and then how can he protect you when you don't listen to him? Right, God, protect us. Do this. Oh, no thanks. I'll go towards Babylon or I'll go towards the world. Then he can't protect you. And now, in Jesus' times, Israel's enemies, they're well protected, but they're under the Roman Empire. They have Herod's temple, which is nice. Not as nice as Solomon's temple, but they miss the point. They reject Jesus. And what is Jesus talking about? Well, in AD 70, the Jerusalem temple built by Herod would once again be in ruins. The city of Jerusalem would be burned down by the Romans. And once again, the city of David would be in ruins. And so the bigger picture is Christ. Only Jesus can rescue us from the biggest obstacle and the biggest enemy, which is our own sin. Our own sin and the enemy of spiritual warfare that comes from Satan himself. So the big idea, the main point of this morning's message is we overcome the ultimate obstacle of sin through Christ who fought the battle that we could not win. Beloved, the physical walls and buildings, they cannot protect us from sin. Weapons of warfare cannot defeat the power of sin. Only Christ can. And God has given us progress I want you, I invite you to take your prayer, prayer guide and go somewhere where you can look at that new building. Okay, and if you're new uh, to our church, then it's okay. Just thank God that he continues to work. And I want you to stand there this week, either in the back when it's safe, if you, ha if you have to see it, or if you're tall enough, you can stand in the front on the parking lot site. I just want you to look at it. And look at it and say, God, you know, without you, these walls wouldn't be up. This, this roof wouldn't be up. So why do you want to give that to us? 
Because there's people like you, and some of you, if you've suffered, you understand. There's people like you who are struggling with cancer, and discouragement is just hitting them. And they don't know Jesus, and they live in our community. And they have no idea that Christ could heal them and rescue them and give them eternal security. There are people who are struggling with sin. There are marriages that are hurting. There are peoples whose families are hurting. There are people who are hopeless and helpless in, around us. There are young people who are depressed and suicidal. There are people who are struggling with sin and who want to change but don't know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And some way, do you think that God can unite a people who understand that that building's not for us? That when we go in there, that God's given us this building decades later after we receive the land to enact and to build according ministries according to the Great Commission and to reach people for Jesus and that each and every one of us have a spiritual gift or two or three and how we are to use that for his kingdom, that each and every one of you and me, we must pick up our sword, the Bible, and we must pick up our our shovel, which is prayer or financial giving or our time and our resources for the kingdom. But we don't know what that is for each and every one of you. And that's what this week's prayer, prayer guide is to take you through, right? You begin to, to think about where God has placed you. You think about the free country that we live in, the freedom to worship, and, and how God continues to sustain us and take us through. So I want you to, I invite you to take this this week. Go through it with your family. Go through it with your small group or your community group. And Wednesday night, we're going to come together during prayer meeting, and we're going to talk about this some more, okay? And we'll come back next week, and we'll talk about realize the purpose, and we'll talk about reach the people. But ultimately, everything is about Christ. Let's pray to him now. Father, we come to you, and we understood and we understand from your text that Nehemiah's building project was meant to point us towards Jesus Christ and the greater need of both Israel and the nations, which is salvation and victory over sin, which is only made possible through the cross of Christ. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would rescue those of us or who are struggling, or anybody in here who doesn't know you as, as their personal Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would save lost souls who are here this morning, and that you would use us to save lost souls who are in the communities that surround us. Help us as a church to be a church that takes holiness seriously. Give us a passion for personal holiness. Lord, help us to be a church that is united, that we would have unity of the body, especially in this time of a building project where there's a lot of opinions. Lord, help us to be united. Help us to be humble. And Lord, help us to be a people who fight through prayer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.